0: Travis Hodges just joins us now on the Wintrust Business Lunch, Managing Director at VIU by HUB. Travis, thanks for joining us today. How
1: are you? I'm great, John. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you spending some time with us. I know
0: what we're going to talk about, but what does VIU and HUB stand for?
1: That was a great question. Popular. Um, neither one are acronyms. It's VU, not V-I-U. It's VU by HUB, which is HUB International is one of the largest insurance brokers in the world, um, one of the largest personal lines in the United States, and VIEW is the digital brokerage to help consumers like your listeners find the best insurance options uh, for their families.
0: You told producer Pete this, there is a protection gap in America, and you said that about climate-related disasters, just 60 percent of the $165 billion in economic losses from extreme weather last year were covered by insurance. Only 60% of the loss from weather events last year were covered by insurance. Am I reading that correctly?
1: You are. One of the biggest drivers with that, John, is actually flood because your standard homeowner policy doesn't cover flood. And unfortunately, what more and more homeowners are finding out that just because you don't live in a floodplain or required to have it um, with the climate, the change, the precipitation levels, the just the changing environment that we're living in, people find that out the hard way. Right. So flood's the primary driver of that metric.
0: I see, because uh, you think hurricanes and some natural yes. disasters that hit the coast. We don't have wildfires in Chicago. We don't have hurricanes. We do have tornadoes. Uh, but a lot of us have flooding in our basements. Is that what we're talking about, or is that something different?
1: Yes, yeah, this is this is something different. The water through the basements is usually a covered loss. But you, you referenced it. If anybody knows, it's your listeners. And, and just in, in a short period of time, you can see the tornadic activity in Illinois and how it's changing and evolving. And you know, unfortunately, twenty three was destroyed the all time record for most tornadoes in Illinois. So you can see the change happening right before us. This isn't a period of 10 to 15 years that you have to look at. Just look at this calendar year and what's happening and realize that a lot of things are, are rapidly, it's not an evolution, it's a, it's a rapid, rapid change right in front of us.
0: So homeowners insurance premiums have been going up. Is it because of that?
1: It is. It's, it's like a lot of things. It's complicated, so I'll try my best to make it simple. Um, clearly, there is a frequency issue with more claims due to the climate changes that you and I just talked about, so a lot more claims are happening, then the severity of those claims are also skyrocketing. When you you think about supply chain issues that are well-documented, the inflation with labor rates. So if I I pay somebody to come repair my house, where two years ago it might have been $1,000, now it's going to be $1,500. So there there's so many ingredients that go into it. And um, all of that is contributing. And I I saw a stat that Illinois is one of the top six states in the United States with the largest increase in homeowner insurance. And you you look at that and you're like, well, we're not on the coast. We don't have wildfires. But still, none of us are are exempt from the current industry trends and what's happening um, in the market.
0: Illinois homeowners insurance premiums. Illinois homeowners insurance premiums have increased by an average of 16% in an area you write not typically prone to natural disaster. And I'm thinking, well, I got homeowners insurance. So yeah. if, if, if we get some river flood in my neighborhood or um, a tornado, I'm covered, right? I mean, what, what, what should I know? And how do I know if I have a gap in my coverage?
1: It's a great question, and that, that's the, something that, that everyone needs to do is that whatever your insurance representation is, whether it's a local agent at the corner, whether it's a broker, whether you work directly with the carrier, um, hopefully they're staying in touch with you so you don't have to wonder. But if you have not heard from them, there needs to be a routine checkup to make sure, one, because I, I have a feeling your home now is worth more than it was two or three years ago. So you need to make sure that your insurance coverages reflect that and are proportionate to that increase because the absolute worst thing that can happen to to us as consumers is that when there is an event, that's not the time you want to find out that you're surprised. Mm-hmm. And, and the best way to avoid that is ongoing systematic communication between your insurance representative and the homeowner
0: so you guys are headquartered in Chicago uh, is this a pitch to call you for insurance or just whoever I'm dealing with are you telling me to cross shop different policies what's what's the message here Travis
1: yeah it's a, it's a little bit of both I, I I think you know there are 200 companies in the state of Illinois that offer homeowner insurance at any given point um, if you're a value shopper and you want to find the lowest price, there are independent agents. There are brokers like us that can help you find that best value. If you're with a carrier that you trust and have been for a while, that's terrific. Whoever that representative is, it's just being an informed shopper, knowing that everything is, is volatile. It's just knowledge is power. And in this environment, um, we need to be more knowledgeable as consumers. But there's also the the responsibility of the insurance professional you 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 touched on it John about the insurance gap a lot of that insurance gap that, that that was driven by the industry trying to make things a little bit easier a little bit faster and sometimes it's it's um, a trade-off with value and quality compromised by speed mm-hmm. and I think the goal is to, to not not compromise one or the other we can have both
0: Travis Hodges is the Managing Director at View by Hub, V-I-U by, by hubcom is the website, V-I-U-B-Y-Hub.com. Travis, this is a heads up. I appreciate the information. Thanks for your time today.
1: Appreciate your show. Thanks for the time, John. Okay,
0: another AI concern for you. On the Wintrust Business Lunch, Philip Weiss, President of SciFarth at work. I said concern because... A lot of the problems, quote-unquote, we have, Philip, with artificial intelligence are 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 sort of dual-edged swords. I mean, we're concerned with AI because it's so valuable. Uh, the, the question is, you know, when does the um, problem outweigh the value in some of these propositions? You agree with me on that?
2: Absolutely, John. I mean, that that is the analysis that a lot of our clients are making. Uh, they... Realize and in many cases welcome the fact that AI and these chat bots that can help you create documents of various sources, sorts, for example, are here, to, are here to stay. Uh, so that, that's just a fact, inescapably. So the issue is without a uh, proper planning and proper application, uh, the use of AI can really run amok. And our clients are really focused on this in the last week or so because of a new story you may have seen or even talked about related to a new law in a city in southern Brazil, a city of over a million people, where one of the council members in that city used a chat GPT to write the law. He told nobody, none of his fellow council people that he had done so, and they voted this bill into law without knowing that it had not been Drafted by a human being. He made some changes, but ultimately and and fundamentally, it was AI generated. A lot of our clients.
0: So go ahead, go ahead, Don. Sorry. Keep going because I'm. Is that a problem necessarily that the bot wrote the law?
2: Well, that's a really good question because the the bot uh, drafted law. Was very much like other laws of its kind dealing with uh, charging for water meters in certain cases. So pretty benign topic. Uh, The interesting thing is uh, because the law sort of failed the test of anybody noticing its source or any uh, irregularities has led our clients to think, well, how many of our internal policies, basically the laws of the road for companies, can similarly be created by AI, therefore saving us a lot of human work hours or fees for external consultants. And it's a little bit of a different animal because when you talk about either complex laws or internal policies, there's many more unique aspects that you have to take into account. Plus, there's the risks that we all have read about, or at least some of us have, uh, in New York. A few months ago, a couple of lawyers were sanctioned because they submitted a legal brief, John, where a number of cases were entirely fictitious, basically hallucinations, as they're called, right. because they relied on AI to write the entire brief for them. So it's this over-reliance piece that really creates the risks.
0: That's interesting. So when they said, OK, give me some reference cases, the uh, ChatGPT created fictional cases that would maybe support their case but did not in fact exist, that's a problem. But if you're asking a computer to write a law that has something to do with meter readings and a human being reads, is is this what we want? As long as a human being reads it, it's okay then? Or are you saying that we should never use ChatGPT for these kinds of situations?
2: Yeah, so it's a little bit of a before and after management, John. Uh, And obviously the chatbots continue to improve. So not to say those mistakes would have been repeated, but the reality is when you're working on a corporate, a company policy, you want to make sure that your input, your requests are really carefully conceived. So you avoid this, what they call AI bias. And we've had clients where um, they came to us after the fact, new clients came to us because they put in a request that focused on what's illegal at work And so, of course, the chatbot gave them a policy all about illegal activities when, in fact, a good policy should focus on what is inappropriate, what's risky. you got to stop it long before it's illegal, frankly, if you're the workplace. That's that issue of putting in the wrong input. Mm -hmm. Another very quick case, a restaurant company came to us because they had a lot of very young employees, many who were not proficient in English, and they asked for a statement on equal employment. And it came back from the chat, the chatbot with all this talk about being kind to other people, thinking that's what maybe kids understand. That's not the kind of language that really should be the mainstay of an equal employment policy or statement. So a lot of examples of pre-management and, as you said, post-review by someone who really understands policies.
0: I never understand why instructions to products I buy are in bad English. And maybe it's a computer that did it. Maybe it's somebody, a third party, or the company itself in India or Vietnam, and they don't speak good English. But just go to a junior college and get the language teacher who is bilingual and ask them to review it or write it. I, I, I cannot understand why something that simple. You bought a product, you've made the investment, you've figured out how to deliver it to a consumer, and then you don't have 10 minutes to ask somebody how to write the instructions. That makes me
2: crazy. Yeah. You're you so right. In fact, there's a cottage industry of companies, John. Their entire purpose is to rewrite the instructions that other companies uh-huh. have created or had created for them because they are so faulty. And you know, AI can absolutely be a time saver. It can absolutely help whether it's a policy or an instruction. But you also need the AH, which is the actual human, not just the AI, to understand the inputs to make sure they're not overbroad or overly limited, and wow. to review carefully as well. Is that a thing? Do we call
0: us AHs now, Philip? You just use that. I've never heard that before.
2: Well, you know, it's a term that, that I and we use talking to some of our clients just to make sure they understand it's a partnership. I mean, it's, it's four letters, and they need to all be working in sync. Uh, just like in factories where you have robots and then you have humans next to them, you do want to have that oversight and that collaboration, so to speak. Philip
0: Weiss is the president of SciFarth at Work, S-E-Y-F-A-R-T-H, Seyfarth com. Thank you, Philip. Thanks for having me, John. Dennis Rodkin in our studio to talk a little bit about the real estate side of things. He's the senior reporter covering residential real estate for Crane's Chicago Business. Happy
3: holidays. Thanks, John. Same to you. Does the real estate market dry up at Christmas? You know, it didn't for the years, what would that be, 2021, 20, during the housing boom. Um, but prior to twenty, prior to 2020, it usually got pretty slow, and it looks to me as if we're back to that this year.
0: During the pandemic, it did not dry up because people were moving out of the city and trying to work at home, and everybody was looking for a,
3: a different piece of real estate, right? Everybody was looking for a different piece of real estate, but remember, not that many actually moved out of the city. A lot of what happened, people moved out from downtown to neighborhoods farther out. We really didn't see uh, the the market drop that much in the city uh, overall, or we didn't see the market drop that much relative to the metro area drop that much. Um, We did right downtown. But yeah, yeah, at that time, everybody was juiced by very low interest rates and by the need... You know, we both need offices. We need a room for the kids to do school in, whatever it is. I need. We need more space for our household, and we may also want to get out to the suburbs, uh, get out to a bigger yard, that kind of thing, because we're going to be working out yeah. at home as well.
0: I wonder if in 2020 and 2021, if interest rates were 7%, if we would have had that exodus, if yeah. people would have felt so compelled to still—they're not coming downtown to work—
3: I wonder if they would have bit the bullet or maybe um,
0: probably less so, right?
3: That's an interesting thought game. I wonder if, if buying costs had been far higher at that time, I guess what we would have done was invest money in, I want to fix up the place I have, I want to finish my garage into a kid's classroom or something like that. Um, I wonder, that would. that's an interesting question. I, of course, there's no uh, fact-based answer. Yeah. Um, and we did do a lot of that fixing up as well. That's true. I mean, people man. who didn't move did. I remember uh, seeing people exercising in the driveway and That's near right. the rec center, near my house, there were yoga classes out on sort of a piece of the parking lot. But what's the condo market like in Chicago? Well, it's interesting. I just, I don't think we have it because it hasn't posted yet. I just wrote one this morning um, about it. There was a $5.2 million sale over here on Oak Street Um the the high the far upper end of the real estate market, not just condos but houses, um, we've seen 33 sales so far this year at five million dollars or more. Ugh. That's compared to 63 at the same time last year. Oh, really? Down by approximately half from 63 to 33. Um, what we've seen sold so far this year is also fewer than what we saw in 2021. That's a bigger drop than the overall market. Homes at all prices are down about twenty percent this year uh, in sales from same time last year. You're talking about the city of Chicago metro, the metro area, and so that condo or that high end story. That's not a story of people leaving the city. Uh, We've seen. There are as many uh, sales—how do I say this without—I said it in the story. The drop in the city has been the same as the drop overall. So we're not seeing people flee downtown Chicago. We're seeing high-end people not buy, whether it's in downtown Chicago or Winnetka or wherever else.
0: I thought you were going to say 30 sales over 5 million was a big number. But that's half of what it was last year.
3: It's about half, yeah. 33 so far this year and 63, not only so far in 2022, but at the end of 2022. Nothing else sold in the latter half of December last year. Well, that's
0: why Brenda and I are just going to rent our Winnetka mansion for (laughs) $43,500 a month.
3: You guys would look great in this. You need sort of no, a creamy this is, white suit this so you is can a, do the whole Gatsby this thing. This is our house. We are renting it oh, out. Oh, you're renting it out. I didn't I, See, I didn't know who the owners were.
0: You didn't know that I owned the... I'll read from your story now. An Art Deco-era mansion in Winnetka filled with features like a blue lacquer room, a sweeping staircase suited for making the most glamorous entrance, and a four-car garage set up like a gallery... For showcasing one's fine automobiles, is the most expensive house listed for rent in the Chicago area for forty three five. Can you imagine a month? A month, yeah, right. By the way, if you just joined us, that's forty three thousand five hundred dollars a month. I don't understand that. Well, I think forty three k a month that then isn't going to buy a house.
3: Well, I think there are a lot of people. A lot of people who rent at that level because uh, one, I'm a sports star and I don't plan to be in Chicago year-round. Right. Two, I'm a CEO or some other high-level executive, and my company is paying my essentially my relocation, my my staying here while I work. Uh, or I have most of my assets. Most of my real estate is in Vail, in Palm Beach, that sort of thing, and I just don't feel the need to own a property. In Chicago, I may only be here for a few months, rent it for a year, use it only a little bit, and then move on. It's a surprise to me too, but but having covered this over the years, I know, I mean, especially there was a period when the athletes who were had been buying big mansions on the North Shore because both the bears and the bulls were practicing out in that direction, um, there was a period where they all started renting because our market was performing so badly you might remember we might have talked about this on your show i had a long talk with nazir muhammad who was on the bulls at the time who said yeah our financial advisors are now telling us in chicago you should rent that was uh you know 2015 because there wasn't going to be the appreciation it wasn't right. a good asset right and there still isn't we we still see uh, far less appreciation in chicago than in most cities funny thing though
0: because the people we're talking about are 27 years old right probably didn't have a history. I mean, because they're so young as homeowners of owning big properties. What I'm saying is that even though you're making millions of dollars a year, you're on the road half the season. I mean, I don't understand why you would buy a $5 million house, buy a $500,000 house, you know, put a big screen TV in there and enjoy life. I don't know. That doesn't make any sense.
3: There have been a few of them, but, but there's also the idea that I need to build a trophy. I mean, you know, the great example is Michael Jordan, who built a giant trophy house near where the Bulls practiced in Highland Park, near where the Bulls practiced in uh, Deerfield at the Berto Center. And then um, his family uh, structure changed. He ends up retiring from the Bulls, and the house has been for sale. I can't remember now. Is it 11 years? It's, um, it's not occupied right now? I don't know whether it's occupied, but it is for sale.
0: (laughs) Well, it's been for sale for a very
3: long. And
0: it had a mold problem for a while, as I recall. I don't know about a mold problem. Maybe I'm making that up, but I don't think I am. I thought that at one point that was one of the problems with that property. And the fact that maybe 23 isn't your favorite number, and I believe that's... Welded into the
3: iron gate out front. <laughs> it is. I wrote a story earlier this year, early this year, about maybe 23 would get his house sold in 23. Oh, but nice. That hasn't happened. Well,
0: it's not over yet. I wonder if he's going to have a sale. Didn't they do some creative pricing about
3: it? Like it was like 23 and 45 and something it's else. It's still, I'd have to uh, write down the numbers, but it's 14 point, something, something. It's like, I think it's 14.885 million. When you add up the numerals, it comes to 23. Got it. But that's been true for years. They cut the price to that from about 28 million and it still hasn't moved.
0: I wanted to ask you about a couple of other issues. The Hinsdale Preservation Board is a story you wrote about, and you also wrote this story. It's this an interesting headline, and we'll get to it in a little bit. Black buyers, small down payments, both symptom and cause of wealth gap. Dennis Rodkin's in our studio from Cranes talking about the Chicago real estate scene. Let's get you more business news now. Here's Steve Grizanich. Start your timer.
3: It's time for the Trust Business Minute, sharing Chicago's business news of the day. Riverwood's based Discover Financial Services has named Michael Rhodes its new president and CEO. He'll take over sometime before March 6th and replace Roger Hochschild, who stepped down last August. Oxchild resigned following the disclosure of regulatory issues relating to misclassification of credit cards. Discover has been shopping around its student loan business and says it plans to focus on core banking products moving forward. Rhodes comes from TD Bank. A Chicago medical device startup has raised $2 million to help it bring a blood clot treatment to market. Flow Medical is a spinoff from University of Chicago and is developing a catheter that dispenses medication in patients with acute pulmonary embolism, a condition that blocks blood flow to the lungs. The influx of financing will help cover research and development and clinical trials as Flow Medical seeks U.S. Food and Drug Administration approval. I'm Steve Grzanich, and that's your Win Trust Business Minute.
0: Business uh, food time. here. Steve Alexander.
4: Part two of a report about the Panama Canal's water problems. That'll wait till tomorrow as I update a recent story about how toddlers are getting lead poisoning from pouches of applesauce the problem is much bigger than first reported more about that after i thank the chevy silverado and chevydrivechicago.com for sponsoring us there's never been a better time to put a silverado in your toolbox okay back to those pouches parents and grandparents love them they are such an easy way to satisfy a hungry toddler or a baby
3: whether it's a yogurt or a fruit puree or whatever It's just kind of a grab-and-go snack for a lot of
2: toddlers.
4: Laura Riley is a food reporter at the Washington Post. She and other reporters there are doing the heavy lifting on this latest lead problem. Toddlers in North Carolina and Maryland were among the first with super high levels of lead in their blood. Rudy,
3: little guy, and his levels came back six times higher than the minimum.
4: You can understand the parents freaking out about it. And,
3: you know, the family is like, oh my God, this. could be the water source, it could be lead paint, what could this be?
4: State investigators in North Carolina found cinnamon-flavored applesauce was causing the problem.
3: It appears to be the cinnamon that is in the applesauce.
4: There is no safe level of lead, but acceptable levels have been established, and North Carolina investigators found some of the pouches contained. 500 times the acceptable level of lead.
3: What that means is that this cinnamon is very, very lead polluted because you don't use a lot of cinnamon.
4: The company that sells the cinnamon applesauce pouches, Wanabana, has recalled them. Wanabana says the cinnamon comes from a company in Ecuador. That company in Ecuador says it typically imports the cinnamon from countries in Asia. Here in the states,
3: we import a lot of the spices that we consume, and there are very few checks on their safety.
4: A week ago, the FDA said it had received reports of 64 kids under the age of 6 who had suffered adverse events linked to the tainted cinnamon applesauce pouches, but the Post did its own survey and found at least 118 cases in 31 states, and more are expected as word gets out and more testing is done. WashingtonPost.com is where you can read more about the pouch problem, and by the way, both Illinois Senator Tammy Duckworth and Illinois Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy are calling for the FDA to step up its oversight of lead and other heavy metals in our baby food. On the food calendar, it's National Ambrosia Day and National Gingerbread House Day. I'm Steve Alexander. That's the business of food on 720 WGN.
0: Talking to Dennis Rodkin, who writes about real estate at Crane's Chicago Business, chicagobusiness.com to follow his stories. The Hinsdale Preservation
3: Board is fighting with some folks in Hinsdale over what, Dennis? Over whether a house can be torn down and replaced with a new one. This is, so Hinsdale, I've called it so many things the epicenter of teardowns, the poster child of teardowns. In 30 years, uh, or four thirty 30 years, Hinsdale's been really where the most teardowns happen. Um, understandable because it's a beautiful place with a nice hilly landscape. Older historical homes sometimes feel outdated, and I've got the money to build something nice, so I take that one down. Uh, There have been several attempts to slow that tide, and last week we saw kind of a a conflict erupt. There is a couple who bought a property, a 1937 house, for for over $2 million, filed with the Historic Preservation Commission. You need two approvals from the Historic Preservation Commission to tear down the old house is one approval and to build the new house right. is another. You don't need their approval. You just need them to vote. Whether If they vote no, you can still build, but you have to go to the Historic Preservation Commission. So what happened last week is the head of the Historic Preservation Commission refused to allow a vote. He just said we're not voting on it, which delays the project. Um, I spoke to him. And he said, he said, this house absolutely can't be built in our historic district. It looks pretty modern. It's not, it's not like super hard, cold modern, but it doesn't look like the historical houses. And so he simply refused to call it to a vote last Wednesday. So I've talked to the builder. Um, the homeowners wouldn't talk to me, but the builder said, you know, he didn't follow the rules of public meetings they need to come to a vote. They didn't. So it's likely they've gone to the city attorney and others. It's likely that um, city officials sort of push the Historic Preservation Commission to go ahead and vote. And again, even if the Preservation Commission votes, no, you can't build this, you can still build it. The Preservation Commission is just advisory. So really what this comes down to is, not that he phrased it this way, but uh, it's essentially a stall tactic.
0: In some neighborhoods, you do see a house that doesn't seem to match the existing neighborhood. And I don't know that it's an eyesore, but it does stand out. But it's somebody else's money, and it's, it's, it's not a bad house. It's just not a consistent house. So who do you think should win in that argument?
3: Well, because I'm going to be covering this story again and again and again, I'm not going to say who whether I think somebody should win. I think the problem uh, for Hinsdale is, as you say, you know, people, it's my money I should be allowed to build. They've really tried hard to balance property rights. Versus the love of those historical homes, yeah. and and it's not individual homes so much as that historical streetscape with the brick tree, uh, brick streets, and the big trees and the nice old houses. They're trying to balance. They've they've had a very hard time. Um, I, I can't remember. I think it's between uh, two thousand and two and twenty twenty, something like one out of five homes in Hinsdale was replaced. That's a lot. <laughs> And, wow. Yeah. And so if you, if and you, those came are nice hins- homes, a lot of them. I mean, the one they're going to tear down is 8,500 square feet. It is. Um, it's got old plumbing. It's got old climate yeah. systems. And get um, rid of it. Generally, people with this level of money want their own design, want something that suits their lifestyle. All right, but
0: You know what I wonder sometimes is when you are that family, now you've built the house. I saw this in an old neighborhood that we used to live in, and you have your fabulous but kind of weird house for the block. I wonder how. You feel like the neighbors are going to feel. Now you're going to live with these people. They're going to be your neighbors, and they may not automatically like you because of what you've done to the streetscape. I mean, that's that's if if you're that hell bent to build that kind of house, go find other houses like that and put it there rather than be the one that's breaking the the pattern.
3: But I want the Hinsdale schools. This is a really nice site. I, I'm I'm certainly not siding with these people or point. the other, but I what think it sounds like. it's, it's very difficult for, uh, I think you're right. People have these kinds of concerns. We have the guy, um, you know, we've talked quite a bit about, uh, the Ishbia family building the big house in Winnetka. They already have neighbors saying, you know, you're not welcome here. And they've said, you know, we're just like everybody else. We're building a gigantic house and it, it we're just like everybody else yeah. period with we're four lots on the lake. Yeah. yeah. And I think that it's a difficult question. It's a, um, it, but once again, it's a balance of my property rights and the sort of community property, which is not legally held, which is the streetscape, the history, the layers.
0: That's a Hinsdale issue. You can read about it at chicagobusiness.com. And you'll also find a story that we'll talk about next time. Black buyers, small down payments, both symptom and cause of wealth gap. Another important and fascinating story when you click on com, Dennis, come back and see us again. Happy holidays in the meantime.
3: Thanks, John. I will, and the same
0: to you.